Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This morning's title is Walking Worthy. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. In one of the uh, Anne of Green Gables novels, the author relates a story of a cranky old churchwoman named Aunt Atossa. At Sunday evening prayer services, Aunt Atossa's, in Aunt Atossa's church, the members would, would, would stand and they'd take turns praying or sharing a prayer need or they'd give a praise report. And it just so happened that one of these, at one of these services, it was led by a visiting minister, a very kind and spiritual man. But he was very, also very hard of hearing. He would appear to be very attentive, but he could barely understand a word that was said. So at this service, cantankerous old Aunt Atossa, who had been storing up a trunk full of grievances and bitterness in her heart for years, finally decided to unload. After a few people stood to pray or share prayer requests, Aunt Atossa jumped to her feet and loudly raked the congregation up one side and down the other. She called out all kinds of various, all, all various, um, she called out various parishioners by name. And she accused them of various sins. And she just criticized every church member that she'd ever had a quarrel or disagreement with, which was nearly everyone. She ripped the lids off of several church scandals, causing several of the ladies in the surrounding pews to, to collapse in swoon. In a swoon. She said, I'm so disgusted with this church. She finished angrily. After I, she said, after I leave tonight, I intend to never darken its doorstep again. And may God bring a fearful judgment on all of you. And then she finally stormed out, out of breath, and with hateful, hateful words, she sat down. And at the pulpit, the kindly, heart of hearing minister smiled kindly, nodded gently, and said in a very pious voice, Amen, sister. May the Lord grant you your prayer. <laughs> Conflict. Conflict. You know, we laugh at this, this story about this lady, but there are those that seem to come into church and they're just looking for a fight. They're unhappy. They come in and just everybody grieves them or they're just waiting for somebody to offend them. Conflict between Christians is one of the most destructive forces in the church. Division among each other has destroyed churches, lives, and weakened ministry and brought disrespect for God's word. And Paul knew this. And Paul expected tensions and conflicts in the body of Christ. And wherever there's people, there, that's going to happen. It's just, it's just going to happen. And he was concerned about it. Paul's concern was the sure tensions and conflicts that arise in the church. And if the church is going to fulfill its calling, then Christians have to live in unity together. We can't change the world as long as we are split up and divided. And if we're disunited, we really don't have anything to offer to say to the world. Because disunity makes us weak. And it causes us to be a big joke to our society. There's an awesome power in unity. And you see it when you read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Where the people were one with one another. They came together as one with one another. 
And if we can't put our differences aside and bring together all the different factions into a single Christian unity, we can't have an effective impact on society the way we're supposed to. And Paul clearly sees the reality of friction between Christians. Or else he wouldn't have exhorted them to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now there were clearly evil forces at work in the early church to divide the Christian body. And trying to break them up into splinter groups. And those evil forces are still at work this morning. To put a stop to them, Paul urged them to endeavor to keep the unity. The word endeavor means spare no effort. Do whatever it takes. The church hasn't always behaved itself the way Paul describes here in chapter 4. But this is the way the church was meant to be and can be and should be. Disagreements and personality differences continue to be a cause of friction between Christians today. But God has given us the the ability to deal with it. In chapters 1, 2, and 3 of of Ephesians, we were in the heavenlies. We were on the highest spiritual point in the New Testament. And in this last section, we come down to earthly living, where we confront a devil-driven world and a skeptical people. Now, can we take the truth of God's word and work it out in our own lives? Are we able to stand and to walk through this world in a way that's pleasing to God? Some people dwell on chapters 1, 2, and 3, and they become rather super spiritual saints. In other words, they're very spiritual, and they can tell you what needs to be done and and what's wrong, but they don't do much in themselves. They know the word of God, but they don't do it. We've come now to the practical part of Ephesians, the earthly behavior of the church. And in this chapter, the church is portrayed as a new man, as it was mentioned in chapter 2. The new man is to reveal himself down here. The members of the invisible church are to make themselves visible down here. And the only way people can see your faith is by the way that you live. We... We are to be outgoing people, and we are to get out the word of God. What Paul says here concerns only those who are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is talking to saved people here. That's who Paul's talking to. He's talking to Christians here, to people that are saved. It's directed to Christians. And God is asking you, or or, if, if you're not a Christian... God is asking you, or is not asking you, I should say, to do the things that he says in this letter. First, you have to become a child of his through faith in Jesus Christ. You have to become a member of his body. And what's laid down in this letter is for those who are saved and who have heard the the, the word of truth. Dead men can't walk. Dead men can't walk in any way. They can't walk in any shape or any form, no matter how much you beg them. Pastor Xavier Reese says, if nobody dies, nobody lives. The Bible works only for dead people. That means we have to be dead to ourselves in order to do what the Bible says. Because this goes against our nature. The natural man wants to do what it wants to do. But unless unless this body is dead... The Bible doesn't work for us. You know when you're dead? You you, want to know when you are dead? Is when you quit reacting to every negative thing that happens to you. Remember when Jesus was on the cross 
and, and the, 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 the Roman soldier went up to uh, check to make sure he was it, and, and, you know, he pierced him with the spear. There was no reaction from Jesus. He was dead. Jesus didn't say, hey, what are you doing? What are you, do you know who I am? Why are you doing that? He didn't react in any way because he was dead. That's when we know we are dead to self. And that's how, and when we can start living for Jesus. The dead man has to be made alive. Paul told us earlier, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, made us alive. So not being a Christian, you know, if you're not a Christian, just sit back and listen to what Paul is saying here. And you will learn what God would ask of you if you are going to become a Christian. And when you look around you, you will know whether or not the Christians you know are living the way God wants them to live. In chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, Paul has told us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul emphasizes the moral purity, the wisdom, and the Spirit's control, the family manifestations, and the warfare of the Christian walk. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, we learn that He chose us before the world was created. And that we've been adopted as sons and daughters and made accepted in the Beloved. We've been redeemed through His blood, forgiven our sins. The mystery of His will has been made known to us. We've obtained an inheritance in Him and we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We were once without Christ, Paul said. We were once aliens, strangers from the commonwealth or the citizenship of Israel. We were strangers from the covenants of promises. Hopeless and without God in the world. He says, but now... You've been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. He said we are his workmanship, his poem, his masterpiece, his work of art, the crown of creation. That's what we are to Christ. And he said created to do good works and seated in the heavenlies. So let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 4. And Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The word therefore in verse 1 is a connector. It's a transitional word. It's in view of everything God has done for the believer, which Paul mentioned in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He says, I beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. When he said, I beg... The word beg suggests intense feeling, strong desire. Paul was just, just urging upon them and impressing upon them to walk worthy. And the way it's used here, it's not just a simple request. Paul was not saying, pretty please walk worthy. He was, it was a plea. He was imploring. He was begging to walk worthy. Paul wasn't giving suggestions to the, to the Ephesians, but God's standards. And if they didn't apply them... They couldn't live in a way that properly matched their being a child of God. And when Paul exhorted them, it, it wasn't a take it or leave it basis. It wasn't on a take it or leave it basis. He couldn't rest until all of those were given to him. All those that were given to him until they, uh, you know, those that he had spiritual care for, he couldn't, again, he couldn't rest and just couldn't, you know, uh, be satisfied and said until they walked in a manner worthy of the calling with which they had been called. 
Christians should not resent pastor, a pastor's pleading. They're exhorting or they're convicting or they're rebuke. You know, uh, you know as, as Paul. You know, again, with, with, we, he, they shouldn't re- reject again or resent that call uh, to, to walk in the faith. You know, like, like, like Paul that, uh, those that Paul ministered to. Paul spoke to the Christians in Galatia as my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. And so again, you know, Paul was just, you know, wanting so badly for them to, to, to walk in Christ and to be that example. He said, and he's laboring with them. He's going to work with them until Christ is formed in them. He suffered continual birth pains, Paul did, because he had such a great desire for the spiritual growth and maturity of those that he ministered to. 3 John, verses 2, 3, and 4 says this. John said, she said, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when, when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Not just pastors, but every Christian should have a loving concern to beg and to plead with others to obey the word of God. And like Paul, you should have a passion to beg your fellow Christians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. To be everything that the Lord wants them to be. The word walk here, it's used many times in the New New Testament to refer to daily behavior. It refers to day-by-day living, and it's the topic of chapters 1 through 3. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, Paul emphasizes the unity of the Christian walk. And in the rest of the chapter, he emphasizes the distinctiveness of the Christian walk. The Christian who walks in a manner worthy of the calling with which he has been called. That is the Christian who lives every day matching his high position as a child of God. It's his normal, everyday living matches, it's to match his spiritual position. The calling with which you were called is the sovereign, redemptive calling of God. Nobody can be saved without Jesus Christ. And that's why our calling is a high calling. Paul said it's a heavenly calling. It's a holy calling. And that's why the faithful, responsive Christian is determined to walk worthy of Again, to walk worthy of the calling. Now, how do we walk? Paul's going to tell us now in the next few verses. Look at verse 2. He says, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So Paul now describes the authentic Christ life character in specific terms. Not generalities. He's giving specific terms on how the authentic Christian is to walk. And he gives us what we call the four graces of unity. The four graces of unity. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. There has to be unity before there's blessing. Unity. God doesn't bless disorder. He doesn't bless chaos. He blesses unity and order. These graces, here's the next thing. These graces aren't natural. They're not natural. They don't come natural. They are gifts of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. 
They're gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they're given to a born-again believer in Christ. They originate in Jesus Christ. And Paul mentions the first one, lowliness. We are to walk in lowliness, or humility. Humility is the foundation of all the other characteristics. If we don't walk in humility, we can't do the rest of them. It's the sincere exercise of one. Humility that leads to the exercise of those that follow. That is the next three. Lowliness is a thankful sense of dependence upon God. It's the opposite of pride and conceit. And boy, there's a lot that's talked about today about pride. Pride is the thing. The stance of humility is a man or woman looking upward. God's work cannot be done the world's way. God called us to humility, and his work can only be accomplished through humility. The biblical commentator Westcott says this, The proud man only looks at that which is or which he thinks to be below him, and so he loses the elevating influence of that which is higher. And I like what Fenelon said because he really nailed it. Humility is the source of all greatness. Pride, listen, pride is always impatient. Pride is ready to be offended, and he who thinks nothing is due him never, think, never thinks himself ill-treated. Pride is impatient, and boy, pride is always to be offended, and it doesn't take much. Humility, one said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking nothing of yourself. Pride does not give in easily to truth. Humility means putting Jesus first, others second, and self last. It means knowing ourselves, accepting ourselves, and being ourselves to the glory of God. God doesn't want us to think that we're, 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 we're you know, to think more highly of ourselves than we should. The next thing Paul says is, after walking in lowliness, is to walk in gentleness. That means meekness. Humility always produces gentleness. Meekness is one of the surest signs of true humility. You can't have meekness without humility, and you can't have meekness with pride. Gentleness is more than modesty. It's more than weakness. It's power under control. A person, a meek person, all right, a meek person is normally quiet, peaceful and easygoing. He never retaliates. He's not aggressive, unforgiving, or self-defensive. It's that unresisting, uncomplaining disposition of mind. It enables us to put up that that enables us to put up with the faults and the injuries of others without getting irritated or resenting them. Jesus being the perfect example. Without contradiction, Jesus could say of himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. Paul speaks about the gentleness of Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.1. Meekness has been called the disposition of the Lamb. David said in Psalm 18.35, Your gentleness has made me great. Of all the things that, Jesus, that, that David experienced in his life, he said, Your gentleness has made me great. When David looked back at those hard years serving Saul, Saul chasing him, wanting to kill him, having to run for years and trying to hide and stay one step ahead of Saul, 
When David looked back on all those years of danger and hard times, he didn't see the hardness of that life. What he saw was the gentleness of God. It's power under control. Moses was a meek man, but Moses demonstrated great power. Jesus was meek and lowly in heart, and yet he chased out the money changers from the temple. In the Greek, this word meekness was used for a soothing medicine. It was used for a colt that had been broken. Also, it was used for a soft wind. Notice, in each of these cases, you have power. Soothing medicine, a colt that was broken, a soft wind. Each case was one of power, but that power was under control. The meek person responds willingly to the word of God, and no matter what the requirements or consequences are. The third thing, Paul said, walk in long-suffering. Long-suffering. A third attitude here that characterizes the Christian's worthy walk is patience, a result of humility and gentleness. It literally means long-tempered. The patient person endures negative circumstances and never gives in to them. This is the enduring and untiring spirit that knows how to outlast pain or provocation. That is, needling and annoyance. So many people are annoyed and irritated so easily. It's the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. In other words, we shouldn't have a short fuse. Remember Hagar, Sarah's handmaid? Sarah despised Hagar and treated her harshly. Sarah dealt with Hagar harshly, so much so that Hagar couldn't take it anymore, and she said, I'm out of here. She ran away. The angel of the Lord found her, and he didn't feel sorry for her. He didn't say, oh, you poor thing. I I saw how how Sarah was treating you harshly and how mean she was to you. And and you know what? You need to go away and do something else. He said, no, you go back to her. Genesis 16. He told her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Now, in obedience for submission to Sarah's abuse, God promised that she would be given many children. God never asked us to do something without him giving us a promise. Not necessarily more children like in this case, but it fit her situation. You know, God never asks us to do something that, that is difficult without him giving us a promise to help us deal with it. So instead of resenting what the Lord told her, In going back, she faithfully went back to the harsh treatment of Sarah. Now, Hagar didn't solve any problems, and none of us do by running away from our problems. So Hagar went back to Sarah. She faced her problem with Sarah head on. She faced her problem with courage, with a new hope, and later on, Ishmael was born to her. When King David came to Bahurim, Shammai came out, cursing David continuously throwing rocks at David, throwing rocks at David's servants. Shammai was calling him all kinds of names and falsely accusing him of being a bloodthirsty man, a rogue. And he accused David of uh, stealing the kingdom from his son Absalom, which it was the reverse. Absalom sold him from his father. Listen to how David handled these kind of things. Listen to Psalm 38, 13 and 14. David said, but I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. 
Thus I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth is no response. David didn't pay any attention to what was said. He didn't react to it. Silence and patient under unjust treatment is what David did. In Psalm 109, 1 through 4, David said, In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Rather than get back at them verbally or say something, he says, I'm just going to pray. Prayer is the safest way of replying to words of hatred, deceit, and lies against you. You see, what causes so much friction and, and, and division, that we have so many temperamental Christians in the body of Christ. So touchy, just waiting to be offended. Those are the kind of Christians that Paul is talking to here. We need to be like Jesus. So that when, like Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in, in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. God, Jesus just let his father deal with it. He didn't threaten back. He didn't revile. He didn't say anything. He just said, Father, you deal with it. It's a strength that's learned only at the feet of Jesus. The opposite of this good quality is the short temper. In the 17th century from the Latin Bible, they tried to coin the word longanimity. Longanimity, which is a lot like the word magnanimity which means loftiness of spirit enabling one to bear trouble calmly, to disdain meanness and pettiness. Longanimity would be the disposition of patiently enduring hardship and abuse with the strong hope of improvement. The patient Christian accepts God's plan for everything without questioning or grumbling and complaining. He doesn't complain when his calling seems less noticeable than somebody else's. Or they don't get all the attention they feel they should. Or when, or, or, or when the Lord sends them to a place that's dangerous or difficult. They remember that God, you know, we need to remember that God left his, his heavenly home of love, holiness, and glory to come here to this earth and become a man to be hated rejected, spit on and crucified without once ever did he return evil for evil or complain to his father. Then the next quality here of grace is bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. This is the practical outcome of a patient spirit where we go on loving and respecting others in spite of their faults and weaknesses. And you can't experience this grace apart from love. 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter tells us that, that this kind of love covers a multitude of sins. The word cover means to throw a blanket over the sins of others. Not to justify them or excuse them, but to keep the sins from becoming more known than necessary. Paul's purpose for discussing these qualities here, these graces of unity... They're laid out here to be a pattern of behavior towards men. They're not laid out to be a pattern of, of behavior in general. He's concerned with the certain tensions and strife that come up in the body of Christ. He's more concerned for the Christian. Because they're not to be like this. You expect the, the, the man in general to be this way. You know, short-tempered and, and, and touching. all, the, But not the believer. Harmony inside the church is the standard for world harmony. We are to be the standard, the example for those outside of Christ. 
But these things can only be, be kept by Christians living together, as mentioned here by Paul. Look at verse 3 now. He says, in, in doing these things, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, we, every Christian, is responsible for keeping unity. And it should be a painstaking and constant concern of every believer. Paul's not talking about organizational unity that's encouraged by denominations and in the worldwide church movement. He's speaking of the inner and universal unity of the spirit that every true Christian is bound by to every other true Christian. Paul makes it clear, this is the unity of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of believers. It doesn't come from outside. It comes, it's, it's in the inside. It doesn't come from the outside, it's from the in, it's, and it's manifested through the inner qualities of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. Spiritual unity is not and cannot be created by the church. We are not to create it. It's not something that Paul is asking us to create. It's already created by the Holy Spirit. We are to keep it going. Now, when he says endeavor to keep the unity... The word endeavoring means <clears throat> giving diligence, striving earnestly, sparing no effort, doing whatever you have to do to keep the unity of the Spirit of peace. He says, he's saying here through this word endeavoring, if others want to quarrel with us, we have to do all that we can not to quarrel with them. The unity is personal and social, and the Holy Spirit gives it and keeps it. If there's unity then we'll have the bond of peace. And the reason for strife on the outside is because of the strife on the inside. It has to do with me. So in closing, if a Christian can't get along with God, he can't get along with others, with other Christians. When God's peace is ruling our hearts, then we'll have unity. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.24, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. So a peaceful attitude and behavior bind Christians together where discord and, and quarreling breaks up and disunites their hearts and their affections. These qualities and the supernatural unity they bring are probably the most powerful testimony that the church can have. Because they're so opposite to the attitudes and the disunity of the world. No program or method, no matter how carefully planned and carried out, can open the door to the gospel in the way individual Christians can do it. When they're truly humble, gentle, patient, forbearing in love, and they show peaceful unity in the Holy Spirit. Father, Again, we thank you for this word, Father. It's so needed. So, Father, it's something that we, we, we need to work on every day, be reminded of every day, God. And again, Father, you've given us the ability through your Spirit. It's gifts of the Holy Spirit, God. Lord, let us have the desire to live as Jesus lived for the glory of God and for the good of mankind. We thank you, Lord, so much for all that you do, all that you are, all that you've been to us, all that you're doing for us, God. So, Lord, you just, again, may we just um, lay our hearts before you, Lord, and, and just allow you to come in and to have your way, God. 
that to, to put you first, then others, and ourselves last, God. So, Lord, we just uh, thank you so much. And, we, Father, we, we, we thank you for the, the offering we'll receive today, Father. We thank you for, again, how you take care of us so well. And you're so generous and so faithful, God. We thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, again, as a reminder, being the last uh, Sunday of the month, it's a night of prayer. So uh, we, we put aside our, our, our character study for tonight, and uh, we just come together tonight, 6 o'clock, and uh, spend a time of prayer. And, and as you all know, there, there's a lot to pray for in our day and age. God bless you guys.